Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We have two wonderful guests here today for Spirit in Action. Eleonora Bartoli and Ali Michael have just released a book about anti-racism that really helps equip people to do the work and to do it in a way that's actually helpful and effective. Our problem, our path, collective anti-racism for white people is insightful, compassionate, brave, and crucial for those who not only want to know or posture, but who want to make progress against racism in our nation and in ourselves. Eleonora is a licensed psychologist providing counseling and consulting services in trauma, resilience building, and multicultural social justice issues. Ali is co-founder and director at the Race Institute for K-12 Educators and is all about educating for equity. Both Eleonora and Ali have authored and co-authored many other books and articles, especially about addressing racism. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. You'll find a longer, uncut recording of our interview on northernspiritradio.org because Eleonora and Ali and their book are just too rich to fit in just 55 minutes. Eleonora Bartoli and Ali Michael join us today via Zoom. Eleonora, how wonderful you to join me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for having me. And where are you? I'm in Philadelphia. You're in Philadelphia. Okay, so this is a Philadelphia-centric program because, Allie, you're also there, right? I'm here in Philadelphia. That's right. How often do you get together? Because writing this book must have been melding a large part of your lives. Yeah, we actually spent a lot of time during COVID in my garage with the door open and with blankets (laughs) stacked on top of us so that we could meet safely. And I think we've been in and out of each other's lives for the last 20 years. When I moved to Philadelphia, I intentionally moved within a mile of Eleonora's house because she's been such an important teacher, mentor, ally to me. We are critical friends to one another, and it's been really important to have each other in our lives, even when we're not working together, even when like sometimes we do actually work together. We're writing this book together, but sometimes we just continue to support one another on an anti-racist path by checking in with each other, brainstorming together, role playing, practicing, processing and all the rest. Your spirits shine through so brightly and so lovingly through this book, really caring about racism and caring about how we get there. The fact that those two are so intricately woven in this book is one of the really valuable things. Again, the book is called Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. There are a lot of books about anti-racism, about dealing with racism that have come out over the last 10, 15 years, particularly. I've been certainly exposed to the ideas for many more years, but you're addressing a particular niche in it. How did you decide on that niche that you wanted to address with our problem, our path? Well, I think we're 
trying to just bring people into the same conversation we've been having for the last 20 years, because when we, Eleanor and I met, we both had already been on an anti-racist path for a long time individually, but we also found ourselves getting stuck frequently, partly because we wanted to do the right thing. We, we didn't want to offend. We didn't want to get, uh, well, I didn't want to say the wrong thing. I'm not sure that that's exactly Eleanor's experience, but you know, it was fun to watch her as an Italian person who was just like much more extroverted about it all, willing to make mistakes. She didn't have some of that training I had that like, we have to be colorblind. We have to not talk about this. And so it was really exciting to just follow her lead and say like, what if we just say what we're thinking and ask questions and get it wrong or get corrected and then move forward rather than trying to be perfect, trying to have it all figured out and then staying silent and not getting our questions answered and not learning and not growing together. And so she's always really inspired me to just kind of lean into some of the messiness of anti-racism that like, there's not a right answer. Our society, which is really structured by a racial caste system, would say that the right answer is to stay quiet, to shut up, to be a bystander, to not say anything, because racism is actually the design. If systemic racism is working, then the system is working. And so like, that's why it often feels better not to do anything, not to say anything. It's messy to challenge that. And it can even be scary, as Eleanor has taught me, that in, in many ways, you stay safe in our society if you don't challenge white supremacy. And white people are just implicitly protected by that. Once we start to challenge it, it can feel scary. That's why we need one another. That's why we need other white people who are walking this path, who can support us to engage in it, even though it's scary, who can support us, as Eleanor says, to train for courage and be able to speak up, even though we don't know the perfect thing to say. We don't know everything. We're all insufficient to the task, and yet every single one of us is needed. I probably have not felt more disappointed in our society than I have starting in 2016. I think I saw racism emerge in a much greater proportion than I had ever imagined it would still be. What's been your experience? Uh, do you want to start, Eleanor? So I came to the U.S. in 1991. And I came as a late teen. When I came to the U.S., I really wasn't aware of what racism was like because it wasn't the same experience that I had while I was middling. It was very clear to me that of all the ways, all the topics and all the areas that I was acculturating into, race was the one that no one wanted to engage with me around. You know, so I could ask questions about many other topics. When it came to race, I had a very strong reaction where I was either blamed for asking the question or called racist for investigating and noticing race. And very few people had answers. So I don't know if I can judge the political system because I was really just trying to figure out what would it be like to live in the United States as a white person and what did it mean, in fact, to be a white person in the United States. But it wasn't until I was completing an internship and saw this documentary, The Color of Fear, which you may have encountered along the way. And David is the one of the main characters, and he's another white cis man who really is trying to figure things out. And like me, he's not afraid of asking questions. And he was asking all the questions that I had. And finally, somebody was answering them, even though there was a lot of conflict, there was a lot of collaboration. And that really turned things around when I began to see the caste system that Ali is talking about and Wilkerson wrote much about and see how it was impacting my relationship with my colleagues, with my friends in the settings that I work, in the trainings that I was doing to become a psychologist. And it became such a lens through which to 
see the reality I was living in that I sort of continue this as my profession. And just to be clear, Eleonora, do you think that racism doesn't exist, doesn't exist in a similar way, whatever, in Italy? So racism is alive and well, unfortunately, in Italy. When I was growing up in the 1780s in Italy, again, I left in 91, there wasn't much visible diversity around me. And there was a lot of tension, however, between North and South. And there's a lot of historical reasons why there's a tension there. That is, you could call races, there was more ethnic tension, but the dynamics were very similar. As I go back now in the last maybe 20 years, 15, 20 years, there's a lot more visible diversity. The refugee community and the immigrant community is much bigger, given all the geopolitical events around the world. And the racism that I hear around me is much more like old-fashioned racism in the United States. There is not something called the, the political correctness has really emerged as something that people value. So people will say things very overtly, just like, I grew up with very overt sexism. I am now hearing very overt racist statements made. So it's an interesting lens to have. What about for you, Ali? What was your situation? You do talk about it in the book. And again, folks, the book is Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. What's your experience growing up colorblind, I think? Yeah, I grew up in a predominantly white suburb where we didn't talk about race. We didn't think racism had anything to do with us. And if you had said, did you grow up in a segregated community? I would have said no, because there were a couple people of color in our community. If you had asked me how much race impacted my life, I would have said not at all. And being white, it has no impact on me. What I didn't see at that time was that I lived in a 99.8% white community and a community that white does not happen by accident. So there's all this social and public policy that went into creating my community. There were, you know, restrictive covenants that prevented white people from selling their homes to black people. There were banks and even the federal government denying mortgages to people coming from black communities. There was even individual level violence or police harassment of people of color trying to move into my community. So in fact, I couldn't even have lived in this community if I hadn't been white. I mean, it would have been very rare. Uh, you know, there would have been a very small chance that I could have been that person who did. So being white impacted me every day of my life, but it was invisible to me. And I, in fact, lived in a highly segregated community. We lived 10 miles away from a community that was almost 100% black and we never mixed. So again, I would have said that I grew up in an integrated community because I didn't know what it meant to be in an integrated community. And I also didn't realize just how many of the ideas that I had about black people and black communities came from stereotypes and movies and suburban legends, and we're not rooted in reality. So actually, psychologists call this a negative racial identity. They say it's a necessarily delusional identity because your understanding of people in racial groups that are different from your own is so superficial, so two-dimensional, so based in stereotype and bias that it's inaccurate, but you think it's right. And that comes from really growing up without having actual interactions with Black communities and Black people or Native people and Native communities or other communities of color. And so that was my childhood. I was raised with parents who really wanted us to be good people. And that's why they raised us to be colorblind. And if you had asked them, why did you live in this segregated place? First of all, I'm not sure they thought about it that way, but they would have said, you know, we want good schools for our kids. We're 
trying to have good opportunities for our children. The whiteness of the community was not apparent to them. It was almost invisible. And my parents, who were just excellent people, they have said, you can share anything you want about your childhood when you talk in public, as long as it's going to help people learn about race and racism. They said, you know, our lives are an open book because they really wanted to do the right thing. They thought they were doing the right thing. They didn't know what it was. There was not a popular conversation around anti-racism that had been accessible to them. Whereas today, I think that's shifting, and that's one of the things we're trying to shift. Well, Allie, one of the things that I think is so impressive in the book, both of you, in fact, share a lot from your personal story. So, Allie, you talk about dealing with your father and having the conversation, how do you do this in partnership without estranging from one another and so on. I really love that you do that in the book because you're modeling for us the work we need to do. And that's the big issue of the book. How do we actually do anti-racism? Not just here's it's a good idea, but how do we do it? The thing you mentioned about schools, the Quaker meeting in Milwaukee when I was there as a family that started attending a white family and they made the deliberate decision to stay in a neighborhood where they would be a minority in the black school. And it was really an amazing thing to see. They did a whole lot of work so that they could stay in without giving in to stereotypes or without othering or any of that kind of thing. The work that they did, I respect them so highly for making that choice when my ex-wife, who grew up in that area, her family moved to the suburb right by because, you know, good schools, which meant for white. So those kind of issues are so important to see talked through, dealt with in this book as well. It's a how-to book. Could you talk about how the conception came about to do with each of the chapters, you do the internal work? Who came up with that idea? Was that the psychologist or the workshop teacher? It was a impossible distinction for us. What we came to realize is that there was no outer work without inner work. There was no inner work without outer work. And the two have been taught in the field very separately. So sometimes, in fact, what people are sort of criticized for navel gazing for doing internal work, or people are said, well, you haven't done your work and there you are trying to be anti-racist on the outside world and you're making so many mistakes, it's actually making things worse in some ways. And so we realized that the was a synergy and a complementarity between doing things, walking the anti-racist path, but also internally utilizing skills to modulate our emotions so we can learn from walking that path, so we can improve how we walk that path, so we could join with each other and move forward in a productive direction. So for us, there was no doubt that what was needed was some conversation around how internal work and external work happen simultaneously, side by side, from the very first second you step on the path. We're going to try and address both parts of it. And you do this explicitly in the book. Again, the book, Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. You talk about, yeah, here are the thoughts, here are the facts, here are the structures we're dealing with. But you explicitly say in one chapter, you have to feel it. If you don't feel it, you're not going to be able to make the change. You're not going to be able to make progress. And I appreciate that so much. Can we talk about the idea of colorblindness, which, Ali, I understand for you was a real trigger, understanding that that was preventing us from doing anti-racist work. I did grow up thinking of colorblind as a positive thing. That is to say, we want to make our decisions colorblind. Who gets the mortgage? 
that decision should be colorblind. I'm in favor of that still. There's so many things which I hope will be colorblind, but not our lives. And I think it's interwoven with the idea of equality versus equity, because we aren't all starting out on the same step on the ladder. So colorblindness, why is it important to not make that our goal? Like you said, I think so many people have a positive intention around colorblindness, and ideally nobody would get treated differently because of the color of their skin. But like I said, so many of us have a negative racial identity or this delusion, this identity that's rooted in bias and stereotype. And we just think we're normal. I'm just normal. And so if I'm colorblind, I'm not able to untangle those biases and stereotypes. I'm not able to address them. So they're part of my consciousness, the way I view the world. They interrupt my capacity to be in relationship with people of color. They throw a really negative shade over the any kind of interaction I might have because I'm seeing it through a biased lens. And it makes it really hard to be in real relationship, in right relationship with people. When we're colorblind as a society, we can't face the ways in which structural racism have shaped our society. And so when the Supreme Court is colorblind or makes colorblind decisions, suddenly we're making decisions rooted in the assumption that we have a racially equitable society, that everything's fine. We don't have anything to change or fix from the past. But all the affirmative action decisions and decisions about thinking you know, accounting for race as we make structural changes in our society require that we be color conscious. And so it's a complicated thing because on the one hand, we know race is a social construction. We're trying to undo racism and we're using race as a concept, race consciousness to help us get there. And so I think the the way that I understand this is to just say that when we're colorblind, what it leads to is not talking about race not thinking about it, not seeing the way it structures our society. And it leaves us kind of in a stalemate. Whereas when, if we have a color conscious or a color brave approach, doesn't require that we judge people based on the color of their skin, that would not be helpful. But it does require that we look at the ways in which race has been used to divide people in our society historically, to put white people first in line for resources and opportunities to structure our society along the lines of a racial caste system, as Isabel Wilkerson has written about in her books on history, and to really work to recognize that, to see where that shows up, and then to begin to interrupt it. Color consciousness, that's what's going to make it possible for us to do that. And that requires that we be able to talk together about this thing that so many of us have been trained, not even just not to talk about, but not even to see. One of the things that you address, and you actually give us a lot of techniques to deal with, is shame. A lot of us are afraid to step forward. Fortunately, you, Eleonora, are not afraid to step forward. And I don't know if that's, if I'm being ethnicist, if I say that's maybe a gift of your Italian background, that you're that way. I think I got some of it from my Irish background, Irish cultural things that came through my family. Actually, I explicitly, about the age of 15, started training myself. To, I desensitized myself to shame. I wanted always to be doing good things. So I didn't want to have any guilt. 
And so I wanted to do things that avoided guilty decisions, but uh, shame, I desensitized myself to. So I would explicitly wear clothes that would make me feel a little bit uncomfortable because I knew some people were going to judge me. I would do little pieces like that. And so I got to the point where I can be myself completely and sometimes too much for my wife, who still has some German shame carried from her upbringing. So, Eleanor, could you talk a bit about shame and why it's important to deal with that? I mean, you talk about it in many of the activities that in the book that help us get to being anti-racist. Yeah, so I think the umbrella that will be helpful to just name for a time being is emotion regulation. Talking about race and racism is a full-body experience. There is our hearts engages, we sweat, we are confused, our mind shuts down. So we have to think about what creates the kind of internal climate and how can we regulate it. The ironic part is that most of us, as you said, I wanted to be a good person and I wanted to do right by the world. And so when we confront as white people, the idea that there is racism and perhaps that we have done harm to others and perhaps that we are complicit in harm done to others, that is a hard thing to hear when we are good people trying to do good in the world. In psychology, we sometimes call that a moral injury when we have violated our own values. We have not abided by our own aspirations and that produces shame. Guilt and shame are not necessarily bad feelings even of themselves. They are teachers. So they tell us, don't go there again. Now, guilt does it in a little sort of amount and shame does it in the categorical amount. It says, if you do that again, you won't be long, you won't be accepted, you won't be welcomed. So it's why people, we feel shame and we feel guilt as we enter conversations about race. And so our body tells us, don't ever do that again, because otherwise you won't belong and you won't be welcome, you will be rejected. And so managing that shame First of all, we need to understand where it comes from. And sometimes it comes because we think, as white people, that our entire identity is locked and defined by that moment in time. So I enter a conversation about race as a white person, I make a mistake, and of course I think I'm inevitably and irreversibly racist. And so I fear that category so much, which is sort of the ultimate inducer of shame. And then I fight against trying to prove myself non-racist, which of course doesn't exist as a category, but I try to prove myself non-racist. And then I forget that the real conversation is about what Ali described, the system of racism that we're all trying to dismantle. And I simply have not seen something in a mistake and want to recover. So holding our own emotions and how do we do that? Most of the time, we guilt and shame. We don't, we have to grieve the fact that we have done something that we are not pleased with and that potentially has hurt somebody. So being able to grieve what we have, the norms that we have violated within ourselves, being able to make repairs, being able to make plans about how we will do it differently in the future. And for all that, we need each other. And that's really what we keep saying in the book. We need each other to help us hold those emotions, process those emotions, and grow from those emotions rather than getting stuck in those emotions. And so usually what happens is the person of color confronts me. I feel guilt and shame. I want to prove myself right. Or I'm asking the person of color to hold my hand. And it's not their job. 
job to hold my hand after I heard them. And so this is where we can do that for each other as white people. You know, Ali and I do this on a semi-daily basis. You were very kindly giving me a lot of credits about being more comfortable with emotions. I'm just as human as everybody else. <laughs> and so I have all my range of emotions, same, guilt, reactivity, defensiveness, etc. I just have learned to recognize them and not be afraid of them. And I know that I have allies to process them. And so every year and every month or every day, I learn how to do that better. And I fall and I get back to square one. And that's what I call Ali. And I said, I fail miserably. And she says, oh, I love you. Let's talk about it. <laughs> and we talk about it. And at the end, we just hug and we've made a plan. And here I go moving forward. There's so much wonderful information and process in this book. Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People, and it's by co-authors Eleonora Bartoli and Ali Michael. We're going to talk much more to them, but first of all, I want to remind you that you are listening to Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website. You'll find links to our guests on our website from not just today, but of course, back all 17 years, we've been doing this program. So please come to our site, check out those links, access those extra resources that otherwise you'll be deprived of. And this book is an immense resource. I want to give you two kudos, by the way, for especially, it's about a 200-page book, and there is more in these 200 pages. Most people include a lot of white space, and environmentally, you've done the right thing by using that white space to put more information, more depth, more insight into. Really, it's a thick read. And I, by that, I don't mean it's hard or ponderous. I mean, it's just so rich in density. So please, folks, get a copy of the book and enrich yourself. And what's more important, and I think that I, I hope you would both would say this, Eleonora and Ali, that by reading this book, it's actually going to make a step for our country in favor of getting rid of racism. It is about actually doing anti-racism, not just talking about it. It's not about beating our breasts. It's not about blaming someone else. It's what can we do that will actually have an effect. So this book is especially valuable to actually step into action. The link is on northernspiritradio.org. You can post comments about this program when you visit our site. You can support us. We do this not by selling ourselves to the corporations or to the government, but it's because our listeners want this program to continue that we do that. So you can help us out on our site. And please remember to support the local community radio stations, the kind of places that carry this program, which carry a portion of the news and of music that you just don't get on mainstream media because they're making too many accommodations. Local community radio station gives you what they have in earnest and honest. So please support them. Again, Eleonora and Ali are joining us today, both of them in Philadelphia. There's so many things we could talk about, and I really feel overwhelmed because I want to get to all of them and we don't have time. One of the things I wanted to address was, I think it was maybe chapter six. It was one of the most, I thought it was wrestling so deeply and wonderfully with the issues. Race is not a biological reality, but our society does construct an identity that's about race. And 
in the chapter where you talk about, okay, so my people were killed by the genocide, by the, the Holocaust, right, the Shoah, that I am not a privileged white person. I was, as a Jew at that point, not a white person. And there was a point where Irish were not white, and there's a point where Italians were not white, and so on. It continues. And to some degree, in some places, that still might be edging towards whiteness. Who would care to address some of the complexities of racial identity and where white privilege is actually landing? Well, yeah, I appreciate you bringing up this whole history because it's so complicated that like whiteness is a social construct that changes over time. And there's a an activist, a Jewish activist named Paul Kivel, who says essentially whiteness is an ever shifting boundary that separates those who are white from those whose exploitation and vulnerability to violence is justified by their not being white. So who is white over time has changed, who is not white, even though that has also changed, not being included in whiteness has always meant increased exposure to vulnerability to violence and exploitation. And so that's one of the hard things to hear when we're talking about whiteness. And so then if you grow up in the 1950s and you're playing in the Italian American Baseball League in Philadelphia, and it's only, you know, you're not allowed in the white league. You play the Italian American Baseball League is, is Italian kids and black kids. And you feel like, well, I'm not a white person. How could I even, when I was nine years old, I wasn't allowed in the white league. How could I now as a 60 year old person identify as white when that's a club I wasn't allowed in? It's almost bizarre that people would expect me to identify as white. Meanwhile, over the course of my lifetime, now I'm, I'm being hypothetical now, I'm sharing a story from the book. Over the course of that person's lifetime, the tectonic plates of race in our country has shifted. And really after World War II, People from Italy and from Ireland and even European Jews, slowly those groups became white, were admitted to white spaces. Uh, we became a part of like the white melting pot of most suburban communities. And so suddenly like what whiteness was becoming was much more inclusive than it had been prior to World War II. But again, if you're caught up in that moment, if you're a Jewish person who has family who died in the Shoah, it's like, well, people did never considered me white and I don't identify with that. It doesn't feel right in my identity to say, yes, that's who I am racially. So we try to explore those stories with people so that there's understanding about why somebody would be a, a person who's really essentially from the outside that looks white and is probably treated as white by people in shops or by police officers would say like, no, but I'm not white. And the invitation that we issue is one of grappling with the ways in which people might racialize you from the outside while your identity is maybe more complicated than meets the eye. And then to consider, so therefore, what is my responsibility? So I mentioned a friend of mine, a rabbi friend of mine who is also gay, who lives in the South, who, you know, he has a multiracial congregation. And so on the one hand, he's like, well, as a gay rabbi, I'm not sure that most Southerners would consider me a white person. I don't even know if that makes sense. But as a rabbi of this congregation, I have many black congregants who are Jewish. They are treated differently than I am as somebody who has white skin privilege. And so he really identifies as a Jewish person who receives white skin privilege. 
And that's part of how he gets around the question of like, are you white or are you not? And that's what we invite people to do is to grapple with the way that we're racialized, even as we know that each of us has very complex identities shaped by many different factors. And then within that, so if you receive white skin privilege to then take responsibility and accountability for that and to really never bow out of the problem solving that we're engaged in around racism. Because what happens when you don't see the ways that you're racialized is that you, you almost, it's almost like, well, that's a racial puzzle and I'm just not part of it. I'm, I don't have a piece to add. And in fact, we're all racialized in the US. Du Bois said race really gives us our identity and takes it away. And it's painful when people don't see us clearly. And at the same time, we need to be accountable for the ways that other people are racializing us. And therefore, that leads to resource and opportunity we might not have otherwise. I have a friend who, when I moved up to Eau Claire 30 years ago, he was also from Milwaukee where I had been living. And so he was helping. We're co-starting a company up here. He said a very interesting thing to me one day. He says, yeah, I'm black. Everybody treats me as black, but I, in fact, probably have more Scottish blood than I do anything from Africa. One thing that he experienced, uh, his wife was white. They had two children. At one point, his child was in a daycare center. At a certain point, he was trying to get his son to stop doing something, picked him up. His son turns to him and says, you get your black hands off of me, which is so complex in the whole family and the whole thing. He, he obviously heard that, I think, at the daycare center, something to that effect. It wasn't from at home he got that. So every one of us is a mixture of race to some degree. And you talk in the book, Our Problem, Our Path, about the one drop rule that was part of what some states, particularly southern states, had. You have one drop of black blood, then you're black. The complexity of racial identity really has to do with how the society identifies you and accords you privileges or not. And again, one more story and I want you to address this particular alley because I think you spent some time in South Africa. The story was about a, it was a, a person who was living there who was a white person, had cancer. And one of the side effects of the chemotherapy for that was his skin got darker. And all of a sudden they treated him as a colored person. So he had his experience opening his eyes to what a racial society he was in and how those privileges could be taken away if someone perceived you a little bit differently. What was your experience with South Africa, Ali? Well, my experience, I was there studying in 1998, four years after apartheid ended. I was at the University of Cape Town. On August 9th, which was Women's Day, which is why it's memorable, I met a woman named Gertrude Squentu. She's a Black South African postal woman who asked me to write her life story. So then we became good friends, and we've been good friends ever since, and I've written multiple versions of her life story. I still haven't figured out quite how to tell it for a popular audience. But in listening to her story as a Black woman growing up under apartheid, I would just became enraged about this system that so arbitrarily divided people and, and just said, like, you're not worth, you are going to be prepared for a life of essentially enslavement. You will never get more than an eighth grade education. You are not worthy of, you know, all of these resources of the state, even though you pay taxes and you're a member of the society. And I got so mad 
mad at all the white South Africans who would say things like, well, can't we just leave it in the past? I mean, you know, like that, th- that's over now. Let's start over and be colorblind. And I'm like, well, this was only four years ago. I mean, it's not <laughs> like it ended very, you know, 60 years ago. But then at a certain point, I kind of realized that all I had all this righteous indignation. And in my country, I'm a white person. And 60 years ago is not that long ago. And in fact, we haven't reckoned with it in my country. And I think seeing racial separation and segregation in South Africa in such stark, exaggerated way, but also in a separate context that wasn't my own, allowed me to be outraged by it in a way that's harder when I'm implicated. And so it's like when I came back to the U.S., I I couldn't see things the same way again. I had a new lens for seeing that would have been harder to develop if I had been resisting it all along because of what it would say about me and some of the advantages that I had been privy to as somebody who had been racialized as white. And Eleonora, given your Italian background, are there aspects of racial identity that you have learned differently than Ali and the rest of us who are always on this continent in North America? I would say when I have encounter the racial identity development model, I felt it was very explaining on my own experience. So I wouldn't say that I haven't had the same kind of racial identity development. The one thing that potentially has placed me in a slightly different position to understand, just like for Ali, for you going to South Africa and seeing a different cultural context was really a powerful way of perspective switching and perspective taking. So in Italy, At the age of nine, I moved from Rome to a small town in the north. And there was a lot of animosity between north and south. And there still is, but certainly there was the primary form of racism or ethnic tension in Italy. And every region in Italy has an accent. So even if somebody speaks English, is Italian and speaks English, I can tell exactly which region they're from most of the time. Because of my family's history, there's not that interesting, but I have a sort of a so-called neutral kind of accent, but coming from Rome, I was clearly not from the North. I either had a slightly Roman inflection or I was clearly not from the North. So I received a lot of pushback. I wouldn't quite call it racism, but it wasn't exactly welcomed. And there were very explicit signs that denigrated folks from the South when I went and lived in the North. So it took me a long time when I came to the US to figure out I was white because I didn't really fit that category in Italy in, in that structure. And so at some level, I would say probably slowed down my identity development because I really had a different kind of experience of where I was situated sociopolitically. And once I saw the same language used towards people of color that was used towards me or towards women, then I think it just gave me the same feeling that Ali, you described in a different context, but this sense of I cannot not see it anymore. It's so obvious and it's so clear. And I had this visceral understanding of it at some level, even though, of course, it's very different, the ethnic tension from the racist tension, the being a woman and the sexism from the racism. But there is something in there that really gave me a window that was made it undeniable. I can't say it enough, folks. This book, Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People by Eleonora Bartoli and Ali Michael, it's such a valuable learning tool. It's about equipment for the work. So I want to make sure I grab some pieces of that, but I feel completely inadequate to bring it out in the short time that we have together. I have the sense that you, Eleonora, have specific gifts about this because you've worked with so many clients who've had to do their inner work. Shame is one of the issues we already talked about. And again, I'm somewhat shame deficient 
in a, I think, a good way. But there's a lot of ways that people are not used to sitting with themselves. One of the things I loved in the book was your whole recounting of the loving kindness and something that you resisted for so many years. Could you please tell that story? It's so wonderful. I have this very in-depth story in the book, and I will give a slightly shortened story. So I'm Italian. I really am comfortable with emotions. But emotions for us are a way of communicating. It's not that I'm particularly touchy-feely. And so there is this wonderful practice coming from the Buddhist tradition that expands your heart and allows you to include in your heart. doesn't mean that you're going to be agreeing. It simply expands your heart to expand your empathy to people that perhaps you don't usually do so. And so there are five parts to the practice. And if you wish well, good wishes with no strings attached, the person is not obliged to abide by these good wishes, but you wish them to be safe and healthy and happy and leave at ease, for example. So you wish it to yourself, you wish it to a loved one, you wish it to a neutral person that you don't feel either way about, and then to somebody that perhaps is a difficult person in your life or in the world, and then to the whole world. And I always thought, like, I'm not going to talk myself into loving people. That's not real. I, I, I don't want to just pretend that, you know, I like people or that I have an open heart. And at some point in my journey, I realized that there was something really important to the muscle of empathy. And the book speaks in depth about empathy as a compass for action. And one of the things that racism does to us as white people, and it makes us numb, and it makes us pull away from have empathy for especially people of color and native people. So I thought, I need to train this muscle some little bit. And so Sharon Salzberg, who's a wonderful teacher within the Buddhist tradition, you know, some of us ask, <laughs> even if I repeat those things, do I have to feel them? Like, because I'm not feeling them, you know? I don't want to wish myself with these people all those good wishes and uh, I may not have really experienced all the love that they seem to imply. So I don't know. Love is a verb, not a noun. You practice love. And so I just repeated for a while and I just did it primarily. So you pick any any of those sort of categories. I picked myself. I could use some more self-compassion. And I did that for a while and I felt nothing. I mean, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going through the motions and I'll do it. And at some point I was in my kitchen and I, I spilled something and usually that would be the moment that I am scolding myself and telling myself off in all sorts of ways. And I felt something inside of me going, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, who's that? Like, you just possessed me, you know? And I laughed out loud, I think. And I realized that the practice has kind of slow cooked to me, it tenderized me into this more open and compassionate thing. I didn't have to be afraid of the feeling of disappointment. I could welcome the feeling of disappointment. And then I began using this practice in other contexts. And I think the biggest one was in 2020 when so much just overt, horrendous, horrific trauma and harm was done to African-Americans in a more public way that I personally had ever witnessed. And it was really hard to keep my heart open. And if I don't keep my heart open, it, I don't know, it, it, it doesn't give me a way to understand the situation enough to be able to change it. So when we go into a flight by freeze reaction, when we when our heart closes, our ability to learn, to empathize and to understand also closes. So you want to keep your empathy centers open, not because you want to agree and make everything okay, is because you can actually much better assess the situation and then do the right thing on the basis of it. So I'll let folks read the details of all the other stages of my practice, but that was quite the journey for me. It is an amazing journey that both of you are telling, both Ali and Eleonora. In Chapter 8, I love the examples that you give there in dealing with other folks who are, I think, either 
could be or are on anti-racist direction, but there is such an easy tendency in our language, in our lives, to other them, to shame them, to put them down, to cut them off like you're not in my group. Could you share a couple of those experiences and ways of dealing with them? We don't have enough time, and that's why people have to buy our problem, our path, collective anti-racism for white people, because there's so much learning that you're going to do here, folks. But a few examples. Well, I think the main template is somebody says something racist, and I identify as anti-racist. So now they said something racist, so I have to be anti them. I'm going to take them out because they're the racist. What we're trying to say is that that's the wrong formula because actually there's another person who said something racist and there's me. We're both white. We both reside in the top part of the racial caste system. I don't change that system. I don't even dent it by shaming that person or calling them out. What will begin to change the system is when that person develops an anti-racist practice that they can carry on through their life. And so my intervention with that person should be based on the question of what they need to learn in order to understand that what they said was upholding the racial caste system, thinking about alternatives, and then how they can move forward, what else they need to learn. This requires that I shift from trying to prove my credentials as an anti-racist person to thinking about what that person needs. And that can be hard because, you know, we know we hear silence is violence. I don't want to be quiet and I don't want to coddle other white people like we need to just buck up and like get with it and do better. And what Eleanor and I are saying is that if it worked to just like yell at each other and say buck up, then we would do that. But that doesn't work. That's not how people learn. Also, it's not strategic. We're not doing any favors to people of color or native people. We're not changing the structure by further polarizing the conversation and alienating white people from an anti-racist path. So an example is my mom. I don't know if this is in the book, but my parents live with us. And at one point she made a joke that kind of had the, the butt of the joke was like a black cultural stereotype. And she said, it's my kids. And I said, I don't like that. I'm not sure why. I don't like that joke. I don't, I don't want you to tell that joke. And she said, she basically started to cry. Like, am I not allowed to tell jokes in my own home? Like, what is this? Like, nothing is funny anymore. And then, so I was like, I'm sorry. Let's talk about this later. So we came back together. I said, I'm sorry. I want you to feel comfortable in your own home. And I know I have a very high bar, but I don't know why that joke makes me uncomfortable, but let's think about it together. And she said, I'd like that because I don't even understand what's wrong with it. And eventually what I came to was any joke that really uses like black cultural or linguistic styles as the, like the butt of you. Any, any joke that really involves anything about black people is probably not going to be a funny joke because it's probably going to be upholding the racial caste system in ways that say black people really are inferior. They really are silly. They really are goofy. Their words and culture are, are just, you know, they're a little unprofessional and kind of laughable. And I don't want my kids to be exposed to jokes that like have, you know, and she's not trying to uphold the racial hierarchy here. And yet the discomfort that I had with the joke was that I think it did contribute to that. But I said to her, I think you're hilarious. I love you. <laughs> I love 
I love your influence on my kids. You teach them so much about community and about even being part of a healthy multiracial community. I love that we live and we share this house together. I don't want to censor you. I just want to keep working through this together because I think it's really important. And she said, yeah, you know, I totally get that. And I'm sorry I overreacted. I also, I don't want to tell jokes that are racist, I just didn't realize it was racist, but I was defensive because I, you know, I, I want to get this right and I really value our living situation. So it took a lot of processing on both of our parts and it took a lot, you know, we, I needed to affirm her. I don't see you as racist or, you know, horrible or anything. And that joke, like we got to talk, we got to talk about that joke. That's just one of the many stories that that one is not told in the book, but interactions with Allie's father are talked about and a number of other specific situations. And I love the vulnerability, again, both you, Eleonora and Allie, bring to this book. We're seeing how you grow, and that helps us grow. It's something we can do together. At one point, you describe a way of communicating, and you've got three steps to it. I have a process that I've adopted and taught for years called listening in tongues. When someone says something to me that sets me off, instead of attacking them or othering them, I try and listen to them. And I think for me, the main conception I do is I summon up the love for them, and often that's easiest done by seeing them as a child, because I can love a child more easily than I can love us complex adults. Again, you give a very good structure, and I think that may come from you, Eleanor, or is that Allie? Is that who? It was jointly constructed. Okay. Well, in any case, it's wonderful tools, again, for doing anti-racism. Now, there's some complexity that I'd like to address in the book too, but we don't have time. So I guess I just have to have you come back another time and we can do that. One of the things, I'll just give you my two cents worth. You both, I think, identify as, as cis women in our society, and I am a cis male. One of the things that that means for me is I was acculturated certain ways of handling conflict. I think I have less shame because I have more male privilege as well as white privilege. On the other hand, my family was working class, so therefore I did not have privilege in that area. But it doesn't matter. Because of that, there are certain ways about communicating and dealing with it. This book seems to me to need some pumping up in dealing with men's issues, how men are going to deflect and not look at racism and be able to adjust it. All the tools are good for men, but I think they could be even better. Go for it, Eleanor. So one thought that we have talked many times about, we certainly have given more examples, obviously, from our experiences and being cis white women, that's what we have talked about. However, one of the main skills that is intentionally not taught to cis men, especially uh, in this country and a lot around the world, is the is empathy. So we are born with a fully operational fly-by-freeze defensive system. We are born with the potential for empathy, but it's something we have to develop in relationships. And so women are usually given more of that training, and men are explicitly given much less of an opportunity to develop that skill. Absolutely. And if you develop that skill, which is, again, the skill itself is talked in the book, but if you could make them front and central for all the wonderful boys that we give, <laughs> that we raise, it would make a significant difference. 
If we had enough time, I would also talk about the complexity of racial identity. We have a horrific history in this country with racism, where particularly people of African origin were enslaved for the most part when they came in this country, sold, families divided, hurt in so many ways. We can't just blink and make that disappear. I think to cure racism, though, is extremely complex. And I was wondering if either of you felt like you were drawing on successful ways of dealing with racism. And in other countries, it might not be called racism. It's the way the Japanese have prejudice against Koreans, or it's the way in Togo, where I lived in West Africa, where the Eve and the Kotkoli saw themselves as different, other, and they had the prejudice against that. Many times it involved killing one another. So I'm aware of those complexities, which are part of human nature. What happened in this country, race was used as the fulcrum to make someone a victim and others not. Have you drawn also on solutions that have been happening in other countries other times? I just want to say one word about human nature, and then I do not have a good answer for you on your other question. <laughs> but I do want to say that, in fact, as human beings, we come into the world incredibly vulnerable, more than any other baby of any other species. And we take a very long time to develop. So we have a defensive system that is very in place. And also we have the capacity and the necessity to bond and become interconnected in a profound way. And without that capacity, we wouldn't have survived as a species. So whenever you see divisive narratives, those are that trigger our defensive system, those are intentional and benefit somebody. Because if you actually left it to us as human nature, we would create and continue to create really powerful, beautiful communities, but it would have to be much more egalitarian. <laughs> you need division to be able to create the kinds of disparity of power and resources that divisions allow to enable to create. So I have read many books. One of them is Survival of the Friendliest by Brian here and Vanessa Wood, The War on Kindness by Jamil Zaki and other books that rethink what we think of as human nature in a way because narratives matter. And so if we have the narrative that some of these divides are inevitable because they're intrinsic to who we are, that's going to create a certain kind of mindset, a certain kind of justification for certain behaviors. And I think if we change the narrative as to, in fact, we are incredible, our very, the reason why we have survived as the, there were multiple human species at some point, we are the one who survived because we were able to befriend people at a distance and befriend people outside of our immediate family. That is our power, our superpower as human beings. So I think we need to get back to our superpowers. Well, I think we've already got the basis for the sequel to our problem, our path, collective anti-racism for white people. If I only have some time later to talk to both of you, I'll give you four or five more subjects to include in there. But I can't say enough how much I love this book and how rich it is and how much our country will be better and will be on our anti-racist path. I'm so thankful that you have given us the equipment to do that work. Thank you both to Eleonora Bartoli and Ali Michael. Thank you both. Thank you, Mark. What an honor to be here. And I hope that your listeners, our readers, find it as helpful as you have found it. We're really honored by your words and your, your effort to read this. Thank you, Ali. And thank you, Eleonora. Thank you so much. It's been an utter delight. And I feel truly energized by 
speaking with you. So thank you for your amazing work and for giving us this opportunity to share our work of the past couple of years or 20 years. It's a complete privilege for me. And folks, again, the link for the book, Our Problem, Our Path, is on nordenspiritradio.org. Read it, enrich yourself, and help change the world in a really absolutely needed and positive direction. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh